Father, blessed be the tie that binds us. Let it be strong. Keep it around us. And may the example of our Lord Jesus this morning be utterly clear for our worshiping hearts. We pray in his name. Amen. Want to know what the world thinks about Christians? Just go to Google and ask it, which is what they do in this short video clip. You need to watch and you need to read very carefully. Let's go. So if they'd had Google when Jesus was here, how would he have fared? Let's Google him in the Gospels right now. See for ourselves. Open your Bible, please, without any further introduction to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, dramatic story with huge clues for life in the third millennium. Luke chapter 5, you didn't bring a Bible, you've got your smartphone, pull it out, you, didn't, you don't have either. Grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It's page 693 in the Pew Bible. I'm in the New King James Version once again today. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. And after these things, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. Hit the pause button right there. Let the record show that this Levi, whom you and I know better as Levi Matthew, this Levi is a tax collector. Now, the Romans called them publicani, from whence comes our word publicans. Greeks called them tel telonai, which means uh, it's a compound word, buyer and tax. They were literally that. They bought the taxes. The Romans had no way to staff their empire with IRS agents in every city, every province. And so what they did was they bid out, they bid out the jobs. You could buy the job for a city, you could buy the job for a province, but be warned, you're going to have to be wealthy because the Romans insisted that you pay up front. You want the whole city of Berrien Springs? You can have it, but you pay for everybody's taxes up front. Whether you collect more or less is immaterial to Rome, you just put up. 
So these huge estates of taxes would often subcontract the job. And almost without exception in the land of Palestine, the subcontracted agents were Jews. You can understand there's no rocket science that if you're a Jewish tax agent, every time you walk into the presence of one of your citizens, it is this awful and painful reminder that this once proud people is under the iron thumb of Rome. You are hated. You are every time you walk away. So consequently, tax collectors are ostracized from social circles. They are excommunicated from the synagogues. No way you will not hang around us. Kind of like gays today in respectable Christian circles, in respectable church circles. And so we come across one of these. They called them heathen dogs. A heathen dog named Levi, excommunicated from the church, outcast from society, and Jesus has the gall to call him, come, follow me. Read it again, verse 27. And after these things, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, you, you, follow me. Verse 28, so he left all, rose up, and followed him. I love the way Desire of Ages describes this moment. Let me put the words on the screen for you. Matthew had listened to the Savior's teaching. As the convicting Spirit of God revealed his sinfulness, he longed to seek help from Christ. But he was accustomed to the exclusiveness of the rabbis and had no thought that this great teacher would notice him. Sitting in his toll booth one day, the publican saw Jesus approaching. Great was his astonishment to hear the words addressed to him, follow me. Matthew, the record reads, left all, rose up, and followed him. There was no hesitation, no questioning, no thought of the lucrative business to be exchanged for poverty and hardship. It was enough for him that he was to be with Jesus, that he might listen to his words and unite with him in his work. I mean, come on, guys. What more could a sinner ask for than to be with Jesus? Matthew is so excited about the call that he goes home, goes online and gets one of those Evites and sends it out to every tax collector and sinner he knows. Come to my house for a dinner party in honor of my new master, Jesus of Nazareth. And oh boy, did they come. Look at this, verse 29. Then Levi gave him, Jesus, a great feast in his own house. Remember, they're wealthy. They're wealthy. Gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Verse 30, And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I like the way the New Living Translation, let me put it on the screen for you. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with such scum? I mean, please, don't you know who these people are? Don't you have any self-respect? Don't you realize that what they stand for is diametrically opposed to what we live for? I mean, how can you be dining with a house full of gays. What were you thinking? And like an eavesdropping mother, Jesus overhears and immediately injects himself into the conversation. Verse 31, Then Jesus answered and said to them, the Pharisees, 
Those who are well have no need of a a physician, but those who are sick. Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, you, you, you have to hand this to the Lord. He is being extremely charitable with these Pharisees. I mean, what, what is he essentially saying? He says, listen, gentlemen, please, since you are so morally healthy and righteous, you hardly need healing now, do you? So you can understand that, that since you don't need me, I have chosen to be with those who need the healer. A backhanded compliment. And what's a Pharisee to say after that? What did Jesus just say? Oh, that's what we need. That's the focus of our worship this morning. Two huge clues on how to live in the third millennium with the example of Jesus. And with that, I wish you'd pull out your study guide. Do you have a study guide in your worship bulletin this morning? Did you guys get it on the, uh, on the uh, platform here? You got your study guides? Good. Uh, pull out your study guide. Ushers, thank you. Move right down up through the balcony here in the sanctuary in overflow if you need to. Let's go. Two huge, two huge points, clues for how to follow follow the master in the third millennium. And by the way, those of you who are watching, as we're getting the study guides out, we're we're delighted to have you as well watching on a screen. You're listening right now somewhere. You see, if you're if you're on the screen, you just saw it pop up. This is our website, www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for this mini series. By the way, it ends next week, three in a row, and then it's over. Mini series entitled. Tattoos on the Heart, but it's the subtitle that engages us. A Case for Apocalyptic Compassion. You see, when we were together last week, when we started the miniseries, we looked at the Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Hey, listen, Paul says, and do this, knowing that we're living on the edge of time and that Christ is coming soon. And do what, Paul? He, the immediately preceding words are, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the closer you get to the return of Christ, the more essential and critical it is that you live out the life of Christ and do this. So we're looking at apocalyptic compassion, all right? So on the website, you're looking for part two. You can get part one there. It's already there. And then join us next week for part three. All right, here we go. Let's go. These are two huge clues how to live out this apocalyptic uh, compassion. What do we get from the words of Jesus? Number one, it's clear. The call of Christ is to sinners. Crystal clear. The call of Christ is to sinners. There is no equivocation in his brief conversation with the Pharisees. What did he say? Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that is a mission of the community of faith, the church that follows this same Jesus. That's our mission. Now, there's a little quip we like to make in, in places like this. I don't think we even understand the depth of what we're saying, but the quip goes like this, and you can jot it down if you wish. The church is not a museum for saints, but a what? But a hospital. Jot that down. But a hospital for sinners. I mean, we say that, don't we? Oh, the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. But if that is true, and most of us would agree that it is, then it means, listen, 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 then then it means that sinners with their full-blown diseases must be welcomed into the hospital. Doesn't it mean that? But of course, what kind of a hospital would the church be to insist that before the sinner enters into this hospital, listen, you get healed out there, then we're going to let you come in. That is absolutely ludicrous. No hospital operates that way. Bring everything you have. Come just as you are, and you'll find healing in here. 
The call of Christ, let it be clear, the call of Christ is to sinners. Thus, he invited them to him, and they invited him to them. In fact, take a look at this story. Luke, Luke is filled with these stories, by the way. This is over here in 15. Uh, Luke chapter 15. So just turn a few pages. It's within striking distance there. Luke 15. Let's pick up the first couple verses. Luke 15, verse 1. Here it is again. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. There was something about Jesus that just, like a magnet, just drew these people to him. Boy, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I just... Just be that magnet for him. Okay, verse 1, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Verse 2, And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, Puh, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I like, the way, I like the way the New International Version puts it. Put it on the screen. Fill it in, please. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. I know some churches who welcome sinners and eat them. <laughs> and there is a vast difference Vast difference. Not Jesus. He invited them to him, and they invited him to them. His come to me would often meet their come to us, please. Please, come to us. Any church, jot this down, will you please? Any church that calls Jesus Lord must call sinners which would include both straight sinners and gay sinners. Would it not? I mean, please. I'll go back to 5, where we were just a moment ago, Luke 5. Read that, that sh like firing, that shot fired out of a cannon from Jesus to the Pharisees. This is verse 31, Luke 5, 31. Then Jesus answered and said to the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So let it be clear. Two huge clues on how to live in the third millennium. Number one, the call of Christ is to sinners. And number two, jot it down, please. The call of Christ is to turn from sin. Write that down too, please. That's what repentance means, to turn away from sin. By the way, that is why Jesus was not so much the life of the party as he was the heart and conscience of the party. The tax collectors never had to wonder where Jesus stood in terms of moral integrity, where Jesus stood in terms of moral purity. Without even speaking it, Jesus was very clear, I am calling you away from your life of sin. I'm calling you away. I will satisfy your deepest longing without your self-medicating because that's what you're doing. You're self-medicating. Let me be the healer. Come to me. I mean, if we, if we want to stay with the hospital metaphor, I mean, can you imagine a person with a life-destroying disease entering the hospital but telling the hospital, I don't want to be healed. I want to keep what I have. I just want to be in here. I mean, please. <laughs> Why do you go to a hospital? Two huge points in that, that, that quip from the lips of our Lord there in that uh, dinner party for tax collectors and sinners. Point number one, the call of Christ is to sinners. And point number two, the call of Christ is to turn from sin. Because you see, 
Because Jesus did not throw the book at them, but instead came to them, sinners were drawn to him. You Google Jesus anywhere in the Gospels, and that's what you'll discover. In fact, Luke leaves out a line that Levi Matthew, who was there, by the way, Luke was not there. Levi Matthew was there, and Levi makes sure that that line gets included in his Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to show you that line. Don't, don't turn to it. Just, just stay where we are in Luke 5. But this is Matthew 9, verse 12. When Jesus heard that, okay, so he heard the criticism of the Pharisees, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, that's, so far it sounds the same, but here comes the line now. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Then he goes back to what Luke has. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Would you jot that down, please? Jesus quotes this line. Jesus says to them, go and learn what this means. I, God, desire mercy and not sacrifice. There are those who wonder, you know, how can, we allow, how, how can we allow ranked sinners to worship with us when we are not clear that they are intent on abandoning their sins? Those who ask that question are asking the wrong question. The question to be asked is about mercy. The line, and would you jot this down, please? The line Luke left out declares that for the community of faith, more desirable to God than the forms of worship, those would be the sacrifices, more desirable to God than the forms of worship is the practice of worship. That's called mercy. That's what worship is about. We're before a merciful God who receives us in spite of ourselves. Go and learn what this means. I, God, desire mercy and not sacrifice. The line Luke, Luke left out declares that for God, orthodoxy, okay, that's, that's right truth, orthodoxy is meaningless without orthopraxy. That's right practice. You have to have the mercy. You have to have the mercy. Go and learn what this means. Why mercy? Don't, don't look this up. You can check it out later. But look at the book of James, Jesus' stepbrother. James chapter 2, verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to the one who is shown no mercy. And then here comes the line. Mercy triumphs. Write it down. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that something? Mercy triumphs over judgment. When judgment wants to throw the sinners out, mercy puts her finger to his lips and says, shh. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Wow, go and learn what this means. I, God, desire mercy, not sacrifice. Wow. I would say, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters of the family, I would say, that the example of our Lord Jesus and these words of God are a strong case for living out the radical apocalyptic compassion of the Lord Jesus himself. In fact, if I were a lawyer, which I am not, if I were a lawyer, I would say right about now, I rest my case. I rest my case. You say, oh, come on, Dwight, but please, pastor. <laughs> I mean, how can we really do it? It's one thing to say it, but to really, truly live this out as Jesus did, this example of compassion and mercy toward all sinners. How can we do it? And, of course, that is the critical question that right now is begging to be answered. Because let's be honest, by slipping in the words gay and lesbian, GLBT or LGBT, it doesn't matter. GLBTQI, it doesn't matter. 
by simply slipping the words into our conversation, we yank this teaching out of the theoretical and shove it into the earthly reality of life as it is on this planet, on this campus, and in this congregation. Suddenly now, reality check time, does it really work for that community of faith? Yeah, you're right. The moment we inject those names, Glenn Harold Stassen, ethicist, uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, describes this radical notion of following the example of Jesus just as he lived it while he was here. He calls it, I like this, he calls it a thicker Jesus. We're not settling for this little slice of Jesus. We're looking at the full orb, full humanity of Christ that he lived, the God in human flesh among us. We need a thicker Jesus, is his point. And so in his book, title of the book, A Thicker Jesus, Incarnational Discipleship in a Secular Age, Stassen puts it this way. I'll put the words on the screen for you, and you also have them in your study guide. A thick, historically embodied, realistic understanding of Jesus Christ as revealing God's character and thus providing norms for guiding our lives will not reduce Jesus to a thin principle or a high ideal or only doctrinal affirmation without solid grounding in his actual history. In other words, what matters is his entire life. The Sermon on the Mount is not enough. Thank God for the Sermon on the Mount, but we have to watch Jesus. Did you practice what you preach? We have to watch the full-orbed living of God in our midst as a human being. By the way, that's not a unique thought to Stassen. What Stassen is trying to do is to, to help us avoid this idealizing the teachings of Jesus. That's all that matters. We just have Jesus teaching. That is not all that matters. We have God in the flesh, and we must watch him like a hawk to know the difference. It's not a new point with him. The Bible made it two millennia earlier. Take a look at this. Jot this down. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. That's what the Bible is saying. You want to follow Jesus? Then you walk as Jesus did. It's not good enough to talk the talk around Andrews University and the Pioneer Memorial Church. You've got to walk the walk. That's what John is saying. Peter, not to be left out, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. You should follow in Jesus' steps. So how does Jesus' example with the tax collectors and sinners who were of every stripe and hue and classification, how does Jesus' example with the sinners of his day, rejected by respectable circles within the community of faith, how does his example with them inform us in the third millennium? I want to close with seven. Seven of these and then I'm sitting down. Seven of them. Seven ways the church must live out the radical example of our Lord Jesus. Write them down, please. Way number one, there it is. We exist to call sinners to the community of Christ. God did not raise us up to call the righteous, entertain the healthy, just keep the healthy entertained around here. That, that, that's good enough. No, 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 no. Like our Lord, our mission is to the sick, the broken, the disenfranchised, the alienated, the marginalized, the dying all around us, even in within us. I love Jesus' Jesus' inaugural sermon back in his hometown of Nazareth. You remember these familiar words, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me, look at this, to preach good news to the poor. Matthew says poor in spirit, but Luke says, no, 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 I'm talking about the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Ladies and gentlemen, his mission, brothers and sisters of the family, his mission is our mission. Point number two, jot it down. We must become a safe haven for all sinners seeking refuge in the Savior. You say, Dwight, what does safe haven mean? Keep your pen moving. Safe haven means protecting their identity. Protecting their identity. This cannot be a community where this cannot be that kind of community. Not the community of Christ. Safe haven means protecting their identity. Safe haven means offering them confidentiality. What you share with me stays between you and me. That's the way Christians are. We protect each other. Safe haven also means, jot this down, providing them a secure, a secure community or circle within which they can experience mercy, compassion, and love unconditionally while they struggle, key word, while they struggle toward God, even if they struggle all their life. Because you struggle all your life. It's called the golden rule. What you want God to do for you, you ask God to do for them. They're going to struggle perhaps all their lives. I have a friend who's a drug addict and an alcoholic. I was just with him a few days ago. I told him I loved him. He said, I love you. Sometimes I walk away and I say, God, my friendship is doing diddly squat in this man's life. Nothing's changed. And then God comes to me and says, Hey, Dwight, kind of like you and me, huh? Kind of like you and me. How long have I been laboring with you over what you know very well I'm laboring with you about? And it, you're not changing. And when God comes to me that way, and I say, Oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. I should be like you are to me, to him. God says, very good. That's it. I dream. I pray for a day when in this place, I'm talking about this university congregation, in this place, if nowhere else on campus, in this place, sinners can be secure, open in their pleas for prayer. I need to talk to you right now. I have this huge struggle. They need to be able to say what the struggle is so that people can intelligently pray with them, but they need to be secure enough to know nobody dishonors my trust in you. I long for a day when there's circles like that. Small groups, I don't know. Circles designed, set up by people who are safe to be with. Not all people are safe to be with. I have learned in my short life on this planet. Some people want to know your secrets, but they can't keep it. Too bad. Too bad. You, you figure it out. It doesn't, it doesn't take long to figure out who's who. And I dream of a day when we can do, as Paul said in Galatians 6, we can bear each other's burdens. Hey, let me carry your burden for a while. Would you carry mine? You see, it's not like I'm the only guy in this group that doesn't have a struggle. The rest of you do, so can I be of great help to you? <laughs> we all are struggling toward God, struggling to the kingdom. But the church must be a safe haven for sinners seeking refuge in the Savior. Look, if you can't talk about your disease in a hospital, where are you supposed to go? Well, don't talk about that disease around here. This is a hospital. 
Well, I thought that's what you do at a hospital. Precisely. It has to be safe. Number four, jot it down, please. No, this is, this is a number three. Yeah, number three. We will not fear those. This is a very important one. We will not fear those who mistake our loving sinners with co-signing on their behavior. Write in that word co-signing because that is what Jesus faced continually. By hanging around these known sinners, you are condoning their sins. Yes, you are. You are co-signing on their immoral behavior. Yes, you are. And Jesus' retort is, hey, listen, time out. These are the people I came to save. If I can't be around them, how can I save them? Go ahead and think what you wish. I have to be here. Of course, the church that seriously seeks to follow Jesus' example will be accused of co-signing on the behavior of all they seek to love and help. That book last weekend, uh, Tattoos on the Heart, from whence comes the title of this little mini-series, I read you a bunch of stories from that book. That was the one charge this Los Angeles, this Los Angeles ministry to gang members simply, repeatedly had to face, and they still do. And by the way, that's why homosexuality presents such a huge challenge to the body of Christ. Because people fear that if the church demonstrates compassion for them, the church will be co-signing on their homosexual behavior. And so to avoid any possibility of being misunderstood, some Christians, and I'm sad to report, some Adventists rail against both homosexuals and homosexual behavior. That way nobody's confused to where I stand. But guess what? We have confused the news media of this nation. And they make a major point of revealing that confusion, showing Christians picketing funerals of slain soldiers with placards that read, Gay, G-A-Y, God abhors you. In Luke 7, a prostitute, a really, truly woman of the night, a prostitute approaches Jesus in a room full of Pharisees. Girl, bad timing. <laughs> room full of Pharisees. Jesus went to parties on anybody. This was a party thrown by the Pharisees for him. She comes into that room. She breaks the thin neck of this alabaster flask. She has tears dripping all over his feet. She's poured out this perfume. She's making quite a scene. And the Pharisee host is watching all of this and thinking, if, if he was who he said he was, he would not be allowing this. We, like Jesus, will not fear those who mistake our love for sinners as co-signing on their behavior. Number four, we must expect criticism. You bet. I mean, look, how, look, look what Jesus had to face. The criticisms of his compassion for sinners. I mean, you can't win for losing. So, so we're, we're in five. Just turn the page over to seven. Jesus says, guys, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say. I, I can't believe this. And, and, and he said, John the Baptist and me. So, so this is uh, Luke 7, 33. Jesus says, hey, look, for, for John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. He's an extremist, a right-wing fanatic. So I come, the Son of Man, eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And by the way, that was not meant as a compliment. That was a huge attack. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Precisely what the church, by the way, 
has been called to become a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So we can't worry about what others say. We will be mistaken. We will be criticized. Apocalyptic compassion has to pay a price. But as we approach the return of Jesus, it is more desperate that this compassion be lived out. Number five, we will teach and defend Christ's high calling to moral purity and holiness. What did he say to that adulterous woman that was thrown at his feet? What did he say to her? Go, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Look it. Same Jesus. We can't one-side Jesus. A lot of people want to one-side Jesus. You can't one-side Jesus. He's a thick Jesus. You've got to take him or leave him, all of him. We will, defend and, we will teach and defend Christ's high calling to moral purity and holiness by seeking to become like Jesus. That's how you become holy. Just become like Jesus. That's how you find purity. Become like Jesus, a thicker Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels. Number six, which means, by the way, we will celebrate not only the pardon of Christ at Calvary in forgiving all our sins, but also the power of Christ at Calvary for overcoming all our sins. Right in that word overcoming. You see, Jesus' association with tax collectors and other such sinners didn't turn them into children's Sabbath school teachers by the next week. That was not his goal. But his strong and radical compassion over time transformed Levi Matthew into one of the four great evangelists who dies as a missionary martyr on foreign shores. His strong, transforming compassion changed Zacchaeus, the wealthy cheat, on the spot, changed him into a fully devoted follower of Christ. His, Jesus' radical compassion surrounded Mary Magdalene. Seven times he cast the demon out of her. Seven times he kept on loving her. Seven times that radical love would not let her go until she became one of his closest followers in history. He just didn't give up. The church of Christ must always minister toward the vision of complete healing and transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Press on, as Jesus did. Don't quit. Don't give up. Press on. Keep loving. Keep loving. And finally, number seven, we will live in worship with continual repentance, confessing that we too fall far short of God's glory. Did you get that? We, too, fall far short of God's glory. Let me end with this provocative observation Ellen White makes in that classic, Steps to Christ. I'll put it on the screen for you. God does not regard all sins as of equal magnitude. There are degrees of guilt in his estimation. The drunkard is despised and told... Hold it, hold it. We're going to do something that you're not allowed to do, but we're going to do it. We're going to pull the word drunkard out, and we're going to put gay in. All right? You want to use the word homosexual, that's fine with me. You want to use the word lesbian, that's fine with me. But we're pulling drunkard out now, and we're substituting it, all right? The gay is despised and is told that his sin will exclude him from heaven, while pride, selfishness, and covetousness too often go unrebuked. But these are sins that are especially offensive to God. Did you catch that? Pride, covetousness, and selfishness are even more offensive to God, especially so. For they are contrary to the benevolence 
of his character, to that unselfish love which is the very atmosphere of the unfallen universe. He who falls into some of the grosser sins, and we all know what grosser sins are, they are the sins that I do not commit. That's why they're gross. Isn't that right? Of course it is. He who falls into some of the grosser sins may feel a sense of his shame and poverty and his need for the grace of Christ, but pride, uh-oh, uh-oh, pride feels no need, and so it closes the heart against Christ and the infinite blessings he came to give, end quote. It is no wonder, ladies and gentlemen, that the Apostle Paul exclaimed, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst because I have those worst sins. I have the worst ones. He's not playing with us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Guess what? Me too. And guess what? Because you don't have the courage to say it, I'll say it for you. You too. We're all in this. Wow, no wonder. Jesus told a parable once about a straight and a gay who went to church one Sabbath. And while the, the straight thanked God that he was not like that miserable gay in the back pew, the poor gay kept beating his chest and crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And behold, Jesus said, only one of the worshipers went home saved. And it was the gay sinner. Yes, but Dwight, 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 did he change? Did he change? I don't know. Jesus forgot to tell us. But then again, it's only a parable. Take out your Connect card, please, today, in your worship bulletin. Got some ushers coming by your way saying, hey, would you like one of these? We'd love to have you have one. Guess we're delighted to have you. Always are. Glad you're joining us today in worship. This is for guests and members, longtime worshipers alike. Take your Connect card. On the front of the Connect card, just enough demographic information about yourself for it to be helpful for us. Particularly if you're going to want some material, just put your email address, would you? Your name and then um, whatever else you want to put, but your email address, where it calls for it, right on the front of the card. We turn the card around and we call this the next step side of the card. And by the way, those of you who are watching on uh, television right now or on uh, online, live streaming, or you're just, you just turned on and you're, you're downloading this particular teaching, you can go to our website, go to, that, go to that spot, Tattoos on the Heart. This little Connect card will be there. You can click onto it and you can make the same uh, decision. And by the way, if you do, send it to us. We will get the material to you. It's not just for you to do it alone and forget about it. We'll help you. All right, so, so there's imp it, it's important to take a next step. It's not, so we get this teaching. Okay, thank you, Jesus, for that great example. Now I've got to go back to what I do. No, we can't, we can't be the same. We can't allow the devil to talk us into just maintaining the status quo. So here, here, my, my next step today, here are three suggestions. Number one, I want to be like Jesus, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I'm telling you what, big X right there for me. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Don't you? Come on, I know you do. 
Put a check mark there. Number two, I want to help my church. Now, this is, this is getting more serious. I want to help my church become a safe haven for all sinners seeking refuge in the Savior. I want to help Pioneer. And if you're, got, you're a member of another church somewhere and you're watching, fine. I want to help my church become a safe haven. What will it take around here? I'm going to have to huddle with some people who might have some counsel that would be important for me. We can't just hear this and not do something. Hey, listen, Dwight, I want to help. If you need my help, you can count on me. Put a check mark there. And then finally, number three, I would like to read the Gospel of Luke each day, learning from Jesus how to live out his compassion. Hey, wait a minute, Dwight, didn't we have that last week? Yeah, that was number three. But did you finish the book last week? Oh, good. Well, then you can go back to Luke again this next week. The stories are there. Just a smattering of them we got today. You watch Jesus. Just watch him like a hawk. Look how the mercy of God flows out through him. Look how he actually walks up to people who are so different from him, and he just radically draws them into that, that heart that loves. Yeah, I, I, I would like to read the Gospel of Luke each day. I want to read those stories. I want to be like Jesus. Now, look, if there's one more box, and I want to make one more invitation. Some of you came to church today, and you said, whoa, kind of surreal, like an out-of-body experience. You've been talking about me. Well, I don't believe you're here by accident then. And I'd like you to find what Jesus is like. In this other little box, it says, I'm interested, I'm interested in beginning a relationship with Jesus. If you put a check mark right there, I'll make sure that within 48 hours, through cyberspace, nobody will come to your house or to your room through cyberspace. We'll send material to you that will enable you to begin to explore who is this Jesus. I mean, if he was such good news 2,000 years ago, would he be good news today? I'm telling you, my friend, he's just as good news. He is just as good news. Get to know him. Put a check mark there, and you can begin the journey of coming to know this same Lord Jesus. You will never be the same again. I promise you, never be the same again. Our ushers are going to come by now and receive your Connect card and then our morning tithes and offerings. But I want to pray. I want to ask God to bless these decisions we've made, our commitments, our next steps. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Oh, God, how can we argue with Emmanuel, God who is with us? When he says, follow me, he means just that, follow him. We want to be followers of Christ. We want to live life as he lived it. We want to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So, Father, that begins deep inside my heart. That begins inside of each of our hearts. Nobody can legislate this. This isn't some group vote. It's, a, it's the choice of wanting to live in the footsteps of our Master. And so, bless every man, woman, every young adult, every teenager, every child here whose heart has been touched by the example of Jesus. Draw all of us into a collective picture, a portrait of the Savior of the world who is a friend of sinners. We want to be that kind of friend for all in the name of Christ Jesus. Now, receive, Father, our, our morning tithes and offerings. We have received freely. We're, we're grateful to give back to you. Bless it real good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.